Hello, hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. My name is Tyler Phillips, and I'm a social work student here at the University of Calgary. As per usual, I want to start this podcast off with a land acknowledgement. CJSW Radio broadcasts out of McKinsis at the University of Calgary campus radio station located on Treaty 7 land. CGSW would like to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprised of the Siksika, Pekani, and Kainai First Nations, and the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearpa, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Land of Alberta, Region 3. CGSW would also like to note that the University of Calgary is situated on land adjacent to where the Bow River meets the Elbow River, and that the traditional Blackfoot name of this place is Mokinsis, which we now call the City of Calgary. In this episode of Shifting Perspectives, I want to discuss a topic that is maybe more specifically focused on social work, but I would argue that the topics I will be exploring may be relatable for most, if not all, students exiting their degrees and entering the field. No matter what your field of study is, I think there are limitations within what our education prepares us for. After we graduate, we really do feel like masters of our own craft, as we technically do have the most up-to-date knowledge on the subject matter. And we have have spent so much time, endless endless amount of hours, um, you know, mentally tormenting ourselves to meet expectations, complete assignments before their 11.59 p.m cut off and cram in as much information as we can before a midterm or a final exam. Students are some of the most hardworking people out there and I maybe I'm probably a bit biased there with that opinion but I will say it's a lot of work going to school full-time while also potentially working part-time or full-time or having any kind of hobby or sport or anything like that on top of maintaining some sort of social life as well, and somehow also finding time to take care of our own selves. It can be exhausting to say the least. (laughs) But I will say, I do love going to school and having the privilege to further my learning and education in areas I actually want to focus my time and energy on. It is also nice to meet new people who have similar interests and worldviews as myself. Anyways, before I get on any further tangent, I want to mention that as much as post-secondary education can prepare you for the career you are wanting to enter into, I can guarantee you that there will be so many things that you will not be prepared for. Throughout this episode, I'll be talking about what you are not prepared for as a social worker. A lot of the information I'll be sharing is from stories and advice I found online, in books, by other social workers who are already well-versed into the field, as well as some personal things I've had come up for me as someone who graduated from the social work diploma in 2020 and entered the field during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, It's my hope to share some insights to not only prepare new social workers entering into the field, but to also maybe validate some feelings and experiences that we may all have gone through or have shared at one time or another. Before I begin, I want to also preface that I'm by no means an expert in any of these topics, and I took a lot of information I found um, relatable for some of the things I also wasn't prepared for, as well as some valuable and applicable advice. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. I think one of the most important things to know is that the learning never stops. That goes for pretty much all careers, but in social work, the learning really does never stop, whether that be operationally, practically, or training-wise. 
It doesn't matter where you practice or work in the scope of social work. A crucial part of the role is to keep up to date with trainings, courses, theories, and all other sorts of new methodologies. Here in Canada, we have what is called the Canadian Association of Social Workers, which I will use short form as CASW. If you are a social worker or a social work student, it is highly likely you already are well-versed in the CASW's Code of Ethics. The Code of Ethics is designed to set forth values and principles to guide social workers' professional conduct. Within that Code of Ethics, value number six, competence in professional practice, is all about assuring that social workers uphold the right of clients to be offered the highest quality service possible, as well as to strive to maintain and increase their professional knowledge and skill. If you are a social worker in Alberta, we have the Alberta College of Social Workers, or in short form, ACSW. The ACSW provides a social work standards of practice, which are the minimum standards which all social workers practicing in Alberta are expected to meet. Under subsection E of this document, this is where the standard principles for social work competence is listed and explained. Under E.4a, a social worker will make reasonable and continuous efforts to upgrade and effectively use the values, knowledge, and skills of professional practice. And under E.4d, a social worker, when developing competency in a professional service or technique that is either new to the social worker or new to the profession, will engage in ongoing consultation with other social workers or suitable professionals who are knowledgeable in the area and will seek appropriate education and training in the area. Another part of competence is to assure that social workers stay up to date on technology and be proficient in technological skills. These are only a few examples onto why the learning never stops. Not only is it in our code of ethics and standards of practice to remain competent on newly developing theories, skills, trainings, etc., uh, depending on the agency you work for, they may also expect you to complete a certain number of hours in trainings like diversity, um, indigenous, or 2SLGBTQIA courses. In a video I found on YouTube done by the user Sociable Social Worker, the narrator mentions that something he wished he had known, and I quote, was how much more there was to learn beyond the social work degree. He goes on to explain how he had to complete so many additional trainings and that he continues to have to keep up to date on trainings to remain confident and competent, as well as he had to learn so much about trauma, especially as he worked with children and youth with eating disorders or complex mental health, something he did not previously know much about. I find this to be very relevant in my own experience as when I entered into working with high-risk youth, I also had to attend additional trainings as well as grasp a further knowledge and understanding on the complexities of trauma. Because trauma is so complex, there are always new findings and research articles coming out about why and how trauma shows up and how trauma can be potentially treated or medicated. I talk about this a bit in my first episode on psychedelic assisted therapy because there are always new findings and discoveries being made because our brains are so unique and complicated to fully understand. Beyond this type of learning, something to also mention about how the learning really never does stop is that you also learn so much about yourself. I think during social work education, you are always going to be learning things about yourself as there's endless self-reflection papers and other assignments that are um, assigned to us. But I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, 
self-reflection just really does never stop. Neither does self-learning. It is almost like a different type of self-reflection, though. For me, at least, it's a lot more of like, should I have said that? Or what could I have done differently? Or why did that cause me to have a trigger reaction? I also think that self-reflection at times can also cause those feelings of imposter syndrome or maybe even frustration or powerlessness because of the endless hoops and obstacles you must jump through because of how the system is. The phenomenon of imposter syndrome seems to be completely common among social work students and newly graduated social workers as well. I think because it's so common, it's important to remember that you can only learn so much within school. You will get real experience and develop your skills when working in the field. It can be very overwhelming at times, especially during practicums, because though you're doing field work for an entire semester, you are only doing entry-level work and maybe some extra random tasks the majority of the time. At a diploma or BSW level two, you aren't given clients or a caseload that you have to manage on your own. You're often with a supervisor or other staff members. Though it's important experience and it is definitely a great way to develop your professional identity, you really won't start becoming confident in the field until you work your first job and gain experience. Again, this is my own opinion and maybe some of the opinions of other social workers I've interviewed or found sharing their insights online. I just wanted to highlight that confidence can take time. I know for me, the job I've worked, there's been a significant lack of training. Maybe that's just my own experience or expectations, but I have been thrown into the ring of fire as a frontline worker many times, and here is what I have to say. I like to think of all of my education is the foundation of a house. But you can't just live on a piece of concrete slab, right? You need to build walls, and within those walls, you can build rooms and so on. So if education is the foundation, the walls, metaphorically speaking, are the skills, the experiences, personal strengths, and I would even say the mistakes that are made those early, in those early developmental stages. To keep building that house, the next step is a roof which could be all the accomplishments, additional training, and whatever. Anyways, it can take a long time to, you know, fully build this house, but every new addition you add to it is just another improvement that makes that foundation stronger and more developed. As corny as this metaphor is, I think it really validates those feelings of imposter syndrome, because like they say, Rome really was not built in a day. You are going to keep learning every single day, whether that be something new about yourself and the population of people you serve, or about your practice, the policies within your agency, or even maybe some theories. There will always be something new to learn because truly no one day is the same as a social worker. The next thing I wanted to talk about is burnout, compassion fatigue, and the whole notion of self-care. I remember touching on burnout and compassion fatigue during my diploma and how it is extremely common due to the circumstances of our jobs. In an article I found via the Social Work Haven blog, it is stated, and I quote that, according to a survey of a thousand practicing social workers, 34% have reported to be in a state of burnout and 75% have dealt with burnout before. This might be a stupid thing to say, but I will admit that I felt a little invincible and that I was absolutely made for social work and that it would be something I will do forever and will never lose that passion, empathy, compassion, and whatnot. I can now say that three years into it, 
I'm definitely not invincible. I too have gone through burnout and compassion fatigue. An example I really wanted to mention is that something nobody can prepare you for or you can really prepare yourself for um, in these circumstances is that the unfortunate reality of having a client pass away. As morbid as it may sound too, even if I had accepted my client was going to pass on at some point due to the complex challenges they were faced in their lives, I still feel like I was just never ready for that phone call. And I feel like you maybe are never really ready for that phone call. I think it is especially hard because I work with mid to high risk youth and young adults who have gone through experiences that I certainly wouldn't wish on anybody. It's all very sad. And in my experience, it did eat away at me even when I was putting on a brave face. And it wasn't like I had just heard the news of a client passing away and was instantly burnt out. It was more of a series of events where my cortisol levels felt like they were never getting time to recover, where I was really starting to feel burnt out. It was more like I genuinely feel fine, but I found I was always busy caring for others rather than actually caring for myself. There was also a factor of getting more and more increasingly frustrated with how the system works and the limitations of my role. There was a point in the fall of 2021 and winter of 2022, I was getting sick a lot more, I was exhausted, I even noticed my appetite changed and all I wanted to eat was like salty, fatty foods. There was clearly other things going on as well. I think even at one point, my ma- one of my managers said to me, you don't even sound like yourself. That sort of struck me as a sign that maybe things aren't a-okay. I think as soon as I noticed that other people were seeing me maybe not really being my best self or just being myself really at all, um, there was also that aspect and that whole phenomenon that comes in that, oh, you need to practice self-care. Some fun facts that I wanted to mention about self-care is, firstly... The term self-care was coined in the 1950s during the civil rights movement. It's even said that the ancient Greeks were known to practice self-care and they called it philotia, which translates most closely to self-love or love of self. Self Self-care today is maybe not quite the same, or I would even argue as accessible. Self-care today is now a billion-dollar industry that's heavily preached and marketed. Meg Kissack sums this up perfectly by explaining that, and I quote, the new hashtag self-care trend tends to do one of two things. Firstly, makes you feel shit about yourself because self-care looks like something that has to be beautiful and impressive. It seems to be something exclusively for white, middle-class, skinny, yoga-doing, green smoothie-drinking, and law-of-attraction-believing women. And I don't know about you but i do see myself reflected in that it makes me feel fat worse about my love affair with my dry shampoo and makes me feel like i seriously do not have my shit together and secondly it tempts you into believing that if you just got on the green smoothie wagon everything in your life would be okay you decide you're going to get up at 5 a.m. the next morning for your new routine of yoga, smoothie, meditation, workout, affirmations, and when the next day you snooze the alarm clock until 7 and root around looking for a clean pair of leggings or whatever, you end up in scenario 1, feeling shitty, ashamed, and like you're the only woman out there who doesn't have their shit together. 
This is a perfect summary of how I feel too about self-care. <laughs> and I really couldn't have said it any better. And absolutely no shade to the type of people that are part of the 5am club or find joy in exercising or can sit down and journal each day. I truly envy you for being able to commit to that. I often think about how I have literally nothing that is good and healthy for an outlet for stress. This stresses me out even further though. <laughs> but I do find comfort in knowing I am not alone in this. As I did some research for this episode, I found some shockingly relatable stories. That's why I bring it up in this episode because I really want to validate these experiences you may be going through as well. One article I found that dives deep into the dark truths behind our obsession with self-care is written by Shayla Love for Vice Magazine's Burnout and Escapism Issue. I recommend looking at the article as she does a great job explaining how the root of the issue is ultimately the flaws in the mental health care system. She also brings to light how businesses and corporations are essentially capitalizing on our distress by appropriating something that is meant to be beneficial for our overall well-being. There's so much more I could say about this, like probably a whole episode on the complications and limitations of self-care. But for the remainder of this episode, I want to go over some advice I found online that may be useful to better prepare you for being a social worker and that I found relevant in regards to this episode. The first thing I want to discuss is the importance of asking for help. I know for some, asking others for help can be a bit daunting, but I can't say this enough. Asking for help is so important. I recently even said this to a coworker of mine. If you don't know, just ask. I mentioned that I always ask questions because I would rather know how to do something properly or confirm I'm doing something the right way rather than doing it the wrong and having to either redo it or cause further complications down the road. Something Alistair Kennedy mentions in his YouTube video titled, what I wish I'd known at the start of my social work career is... Ask for help. I always say to graduates, if you're struggling, please ask for help. I know it takes quite a lot to do and you might think, well, I'm a trained social worker and I should be doing this and I shouldn't give, give you know, I'm letting myself down by telling my senior that I'm struggling. But, you know, at one point I had a massive caseload and I was newly qualified at about 70 families um, I had a family that was that had 12 children, one on the way, and six of them were on the child protection register, which means I had to see them every week. Um, they were a great family and there wasn't a lot of work to do. Um, I remember the school always phoning every Friday and saying, do you know that the children are looking after one another? And I'm like, yeah, because there's 12 of them and they're all in the house. And I used to go and there'd be several children running about in with no clothes on and they couldn't afford to buy some of the children clothes and you couldn't get bikes and Christmases were always amazing in that house because I used to go around with Christmas presents and stuff but you know and then in one year I had four teenagers who died in my caseload and I was investigated by the Scottish office and I was you know I was cleared there was you know there was no, there was no fault found but during that time I never asked for help and I was really traumatized I was really devastated by that I never asked for help. I just kept on going. I just kept on going. And it was the worst time. It really was the worst time. Because I cared for these kids. I really cared for these kids. One of the children in particular had his first pay packet that I had to take. And he died from sniffing glue. Another one committed suicides. One of them had a brain hemorrhage. Um, somebody died in a car crash. I mean, it was truly, it was hard. It was really hard. 
And then I went to the funeral and I came back in my suit and my black tie and my boss said to me, ah, to be sure, well, here's the case file now, now that you've got some space in your caseload. <laughs> it was just like the darkest social work humour ever. On the topic of asking for help, I also think it's extremely important to ask for feedback and learn how to appropriately take feedback. Receiving feedback is actually such a valuable asset for social workers. Feedback can help with several different things, such as enhancing knowledge. It can give you the opportunities to learn what your strengths and perhaps things to improve on, as well as it helps increase self-reflection and self-awareness. Whether or not you agree or disagree with the feedback you are given, it's actually super important to self-reflect on what was said because that is how the person delivering the feedback experienced your practice. If you don't know you're doing something wrong or unintentionally causing harm, how can you ever fix it without receiving good critical feedback? And remember, you yourself can always ask for feedback. It doesn't have to be something you have to anxiously wait to receive rather it can be something informal and spontaneous it is also important to try and not take the feedback given too sensitively for instance sometimes feedback isn't coming from your superior rather it can come from a client who will not use as gentle of words as perhaps your friends or colleagues may use instead of becoming defensive try and see it from their point of view and understand why they are giving you the feedback whether it be positive or negative The last little bit of what I wanted to mention surrounding this is not everyone who criticizes you is attacking you or trying to cause you any harm. Oftentimes, they just want to be heard and express to you the mistakes you made. It's easier said than done, but try to not take things too personally and remember to focus on the positive feedback as well. And remember, the only thing you can control is yourself. Some other good advice I found was try to work for organizations that align to your values. Sometimes dealing with organizational structure is the most difficult part of the job. If you're working for an agency that doesn't align in your values, beliefs, and passion, you could either burn yourself out quicker or completely resent the job overall. For example, I personally do not agree with restraining or putting my hands on anyone. That doesn't mean I'm opposed to self-defense. What I means is I personally do not want to restrain a client if or when they have a behavior or emotional outburst. In some agencies, this is a requirement and there is training on how to appropriately restrain if absolutely necessary. This isn't something I would be overly comfortable with as it does not align with my beliefs. I know this about myself, therefore, I openly refuse working in roles or for agencies that this is a standard of practice. Anyways, working for an agency or organization that aligns with your values will make you love the job and will also help you keep that passion for the field. It is also a bit of a bonus if you choose to work for organizations that provide you wellness days and a good healthcare package that includes money towards counseling supports. And remember, utilize those wellness days and use that healthcare benefit and book counseling appointments because they are really there for your personal benefit. A part of this as well is it is also advised to learn to cope with corporate change. This is highlighted in the article titled What I Wish I'd Known at the Start of My Social Work Career by Amanda Moore. She says that she always tells her students social workers need to be able to cope with corporate change and not to be put off by constant changes to the team structure and higher management. 
I've been working for the same agency for the past two and a half years, and it has changed and developed so much since I started back in 2020. It is crazy to think about all the changes that have happened. I'm someone who really loves and embraces change, but I know a lot of people do not love change, so this can be quite challenging. Even as I return back to work from this practicum, even though I've only been gone for four months, so much has changed. And rather than complain about it or be upset, I look at it the positives and look at why maybe the changes were made and perhaps why they actually might be beneficial in the long run. The thing too is that because our world and society is forever changing, that by effect will also affect social work and practice. On that note, something I was not overly prepared for was seeing the turnover rate in some of the teams I've worked for. Whether it be colleagues being promoted or going on maternity leave or moving on to a different job, it can be quite challenging to lose a member of your team, especially because each person brings their own strengths and skills to the team. Regardless, this is just part of the job as well and that that just took me some time to get adjusted to. But don't let that stop you from building relationships with your colleagues. It can actually be really nice having an ally on your team. Sometimes depending on the job, you may not get opportunities for debrief. If in that case, if you have a buddy and someone you can trust on your team, it can be really helpful when you need to have like a five minute rant or whatever. If you're new to the team as well, creating new relationships with your colleagues can really help you with learning how things work and they can assist you in showing you how things operate. Throughout your degree, I can likely guarantee you had close relationships with the people in your cohort. Once you graduate, it's likely many of your peers are going to go in different professional paths. It can also be beneficial for you to remain keeping healthy relationships with these people you met in your BSW because... Who knows, your paths might cross once again. Regardless, those close relationships can be really bonding and be really good as a way to receive validation and feedback on your professional practice. As I wrap up this episode, there are a few other words of advice that I really wanted to highlight. Firstly, as hard as it may be, remember you can't make everybody happy. You also can't expect to help everybody. Clients oftentimes miss appointments or even worse, they go AWOL. Unfortunately, that is just part of the battle of trying to help others. Sometimes the people you desperately want to help really don't want help and refuse and reject things that you know and other professionals know will be beneficial to them. When it comes to making everybody happy, it's just not realistic. You can bend over backwards and do everything within your job description to try and help, but sometimes it's just not good enough and you may be seen as the villain or be accused of not doing your job. This is not uncommon, unfortunately. Beyond this, it is also essential to remember that the person you're working with is the expert of what they need. Rob Mitchell states that, and I quote, the person that you are working with is the expert of their life, their condition, their situation. As such, they are the decision maker, and if they are unable to make decisions, there is legislation to adhere to. The second word of advice is be the social worker you would want to have and treat others how you would want to be treated. As long as you end your day of work knowing you did your best to treat people kindly, you will always find the job to be rewarding. Even if you never hear a thank you, just knowing you did your absolute best and treated everyone the way you would want to be treated is really the best you can do. Something to also know is not all clients are going to like you or appreciate you. There may even be times they resent you. As hard as it is, try to not take it personal. 
I personally think a lot of times it really boils down to it actually really not even being about you. There can be so many factors surrounding why a person treats you the way they do. And honestly, it's likely due to their past experiences and trauma. That is completely out of your control. So remember, stay calm and remain genuine. There is also something else that might be a little bit taboo to mention, but I also think it may be validating for someone to hear this, but you're not going to like all your clients. That may sound terrible, but sometimes it can be hard to bond with certain clients and it can also be hard to navigate through certain problems with clients that are maybe resistant to help or they are just unhappy with the boundaries you put in place. Whatever the case, something Lisa Barron advises, and I quote, Find a strength in every person that walks in your door. Once you are able to focus on these strengths, this will enable you to work with your clients to see their own internal strengths as well. The third and last word of advice I wanted to highlight is remember to set boundaries at the very beginning of the professional relationship. Much like how discharge should begin at intake, setting boundaries and program expectations should also begin at intake. It can be extremely difficult to set boundaries down the road and can really cause conflict within the professional relationship due to the expectations you set at the beginning. Not only that, it can become really exhausting and damaging on yourself when your boundaries are being overstepped or disregarded. In the book Professional Boundaries in Social Work and Social Care, Frank Cooper states, and I quote, Many of the boundaries that apply to workers' behavior help to create a safe, open, stable, transparent relationship that is clearly based on the client's needs. If a client understands what will or won't happen in given circumstances, it gives them a sense of control. If the purpose of the relationship, the, the role that the worker and client play, and the rules that govern it are clear, then the client can relax. Change and uncertainty can create anxiety, and no one is at their best when they are anxious. Whether you want to make a client feel comfortable with you supporting them in their own home or comfortable enough to explore difficult personal issues, boundaries provide a safe framework. I would also like to say that boundaries are a really good way to maintain client trust and assure you are remaining consistent in your practice. And on that note, I would like to conclude this episode by just thanking you for listening and supporting CGSW 90.9 FM radio station located on the University of Calgary campus. If you have any questions or just want to chat, please feel free to email me at tyler.phillips at ucalgary.ca. And if there are any social work related topics you are interested in me covering, please feel free to submit requests through my email as well. Again, thank you for listening to Shifting Perspectives on CGSW 90.9 FM. Goodbye. Goodbye.